Hello, and welcome to the RSE's Tea and Talk podcast series, a programme inspired by the coffee houses of the 18th century, where great thinkers would come together to discuss ideas and matters of the day. I'm Rebecca Widderfield, and I'm Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, which is Scotland's National Academy. Our mission is to advance learning and make knowledge useful. And to do that, we are holding conversations with some of our fellows and other leading experts in Scotland to talk about important issues and the challenges that we face as a society. You can find out more about our work on our website at rsc.org.uk. So today I'm speaking with Professor Lynn Abrams, Chair in Modern History and a member of the Centre of Gender History at the University of Glasgow, and Professor Ian Rivers, Professor of Education for Social Change at the University of Strathclyde, about equality and diversity. Lynn is a historian of gender and gender relations, with her field of interest ranging from the emergence of a modern female self in the late 20th century to the history of masculinities in Scotland. Ian, on the other hand, is a psychologist and educator which researches bullying behaviour in schools, focusing particularly on the bullying of LGBTI young people and the psychological effects of being a bystander. While the focus of their research is different, both have a passion for exploring diversity and inequalities, so who better to talk to us today on these important topics? Lynn, maybe I could come to you in the first instance. Your research has looked at gender and gender relations from the late 18th century to the present, and you're currently undertaking research on post-war womanhood. How have inequalities between men and women changed over time, and what particular changes have you seen in the last 50 years? Well, thanks very much, Rebecca. That's obviously a huge question, so I will focus on the post-war period, I think, if, if, if that's okay. I think there are a couple of areas which, which we might focus on. One clearly is sexual freedom. There's been a, a massive change in, in sexual freedom since the Second World War, and more particularly since the 1960s, and perhaps more especially, I guess, for women with the advent of um, much improved birth control, contraception. So we have much greater choice in, in terms of having a family, the number of children and so on. And that clearly has massive consequences um, down the line for women's engagement in the labour market and their lives thereafter. And, and clearly, and I'm sure Ian will perhaps talk more about this, um, sexual freedom in terms of who you want to be, in terms of one's sexual identity. Um, so they are absolutely massive changes that have happened in, in the last 50 years or so. I think the other really big area is in relation to work and, and reward for work. Um, and again, more particularly for women, and I'm, I guess I'm more interested in equality around uh, women's opportunities um, the opportunity to engage in more areas of work, the opportunity to engage in the labour market over a longer period of time in, in, in a woman's life, life course, um, that's really, really changed over the last 50 years, but also reward for work. And of course, we still have a gender pay gap, um, which I think is about 13, 14%. Um, but having said that, there has been progress in terms of um, the opportunities for women to engage in a whole range of, of, of um, work areas and also the reward that they receive for that work. There are some areas, though, however, that are much, much more resistant to change, and I guess we'll come on to that perhaps a little bit later. And I would say there, um, those areas are mainly the division of labour in the home. That's changing, but, but still that's quite a resistant area. And also work again. I think... Um, although opportunities have increased massively for both women and men, the distribution of those jobs 
has actually stayed quite resistant to change. So we still see um, women dominant in, in the domestic and caring areas. That's really interesting. I think maybe that links to some of the work that you've been involved in, in Ian, because I was thinking about Lynn's comments there, that the distribution of jobs and actually how those distribution of jobs fall out of the school system, if you like, and the education that, that young people have. I, I know you remember the First Minister's Task Force on Gender Equality in Education and Learning. And I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about how this gender inequality manifests itself in an educational setting and what the consequences are of that. Yeah, I, I mean, I would, I'd, I'd echo um, everything that Lynn has said around um, job opportunities increasing over time, but there is still very clearly a divide. I mean, one of the things that we're currently dealing with within education is the disparity in the take-up of posts in primary education, or indeed those seeking primary education, where it still falls in the majority to women. And of course, in secondary education, there is still an underrepresentation of women in STEM subjects. Um, so um, pupils are not seeing women leading STEM still. They're still not seeing enough women in engineering. And these are all factors that we have to consider um, in terms of making sure that we are giving the right guidance in terms of you know, I think one of the questions is, do we go gender blind or do we go gender literate? And I think it's gender literate that we really need to focus on. Um, and I, I mean, I personally would like to see a great deal more balancing of the workforce in education. With respect to the task force itself, I suppose there are two elements to this. One related, again, to the workforce, which is, is the curriculum really um no longer gendered in a way that perhaps it was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I'm not sure that we've got past that. I still think there may be situations whereby girls are directed into particular uh, curricular opportunities more than boys and vice versa. I think the other thing is, is school a safe place? Are any, are any educational settings safe? for women. And that's a huge debate that's going on from early years through to tertiary education. So um, that's another aspect of the uh, First Minister's Task Force that we're looking at. You know, we have issues with sexting, texting. I mean, just this week, we've had the chief inspector for Ofsted saying that the sending of nude pictures is no longer a child protection issue. And given that girls are more likely to be encouraged to send pictures and that boys will distribute them, and that's research from Australia. I think the fact that we're saying that it's no longer a child protection issue and it's part and parcel of everyday life is really quite worrying. And Lynn, how are you seeing this, or are you seeing this playing out in terms of in, in terms of your work at the at the university? Um, this these sort of inequalities in terms of gender. Oh, um, I suppose in terms of um, the de gender distribution of subjects taken, we're seeing um, much more equality, actually. Um, so this is Glasgow University. It might be very different in other institutions, but certainly 
in some of the areas which used to be completely dominated by male students are now very dominated by female students. So law, medicine, veterinary science. And there are big changes happening in the STEM subjects, but I think there are still some areas that are still quite, there's still a lot of work to do, engineering in particular. In the arts and humanities and social sciences, there's much more of a balance as there has been for a a long time. I think the issue uh, around um, sexual assault and safety and so on in universities uh, is a very, a very live one. And it's something that our students are, are very vocal about and, and rightly very, very concerned about. And universities having to think quite hard about how they how they deal with that with that situation. Just going back to the sort of the the imbalance in terms of subjects and and jobs, uh, the RSC did a report on tapping all our talents, which was looking at women in STEM. And then we did a follow up um, study about five years later to see what had changed. And and the talk about the sort of leaky pipeline where the the further you go up or the more senior people get in positions in university in in STEM subjects, the more women drop out, if you like, or, or not represented at the sort of more senior levels. But, but talking about the sort of um, some of the areas you're sort of seeing around uh, sexual assault, whether people feel safe in, in the environment, do you think behaviours have changed and there's more of inappropriate behaviour or is it that they're being talked about and there's a greater visibility to them or, or do we simply just not know? I don't think we know. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that's right. Yeah, I, I really don't think we know. My impression is that um, it's people are much more open about this kind of stuff now, um, and people are much more willing. And of course, there are there are there are avenues to make complaints. There are avenues in which to speak about this kind of thing, whereas perhaps in the past there were not. Um, but that's not to say that the um that there hasn't been an increase so i think it's really it's really difficult to tell actually but obviously it's positive that people are able to speak about this kind of thing and 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 that they are coming coming forward and that universities are having to respond to it and how and in your in your work in schools ian and and looking at bullying of uh, lgbti young people how have you seen that sort of change over time well, I mean, we're very lucky to be living in Scotland, I think, at, at the moment, because we now have an LGBTI curriculum, which is really, really important in terms of at least casting a light and not silencing that particular group of young people within schools and recognizing that they exist. But if I look back, say, 30 years to when I started doing research on this issue, I, you know, um, about, I think in the very first study I did, about 11% of the participants said that they'd been sexually assaulted and or raped at school and was not brought to the attention of law enforcement. Rather, it was dealt with by the school. And I think, you know, we're now seeing a very, very different um, approach taken by schools and um, the police to these these sorts of issues. But we still have a great deal of intolerance. I mean, the fact that, you know, local authorities, despite the fact that LGBTI curricula is supposed to be nationwide, one local authority saying they're not going to do this, they're going to do something else. Um, The fact that we do constantly have pushback on this particular issue, despite the fact that there are all sorts of legislative um, 
changes. I mean, we've had the Equalities Act for over a decade and we're, you know, we're still fighting. And some of it really is about just visibility and recognizing that you know, there is not one group in the classroom, that there are different identities in the classroom. We've managed it with other identities, but I, I, I do sometimes struggle with the vitriol that comes back when you start talking about LGBTI issues and young people, because some of it is still, still incredibly, incredibly um, negative and destructive. And I think, of course, we might want to move on at some point to talk about social media, but the, destru the destructive influence of social media um, now, particularly around issues of sexuality, is tremendous. And of course, we've seen that, that that sort of destructiveness of social media in terms of women as well, um, you know, on that issue, but on other issues as well, where, you know, a number of women who've removed themselves from social media, I'm thinking, I've forgotten her name, that the woman who, who proposed putting another woman's on the banknote um, and the level of vitriol that she, she received. Um, I mean, Lynn, are you seeing much of that in your work? Is that something you've particularly explored or looking at as part of your work on post-war war womanhood? I haven't actually, no. I mean, I, I use social media to recruit people <laughs> and I've certainly used social media to talk about my research actually and it's been really, really successful but that's with a slightly sort of different um, age cohort of women, mm -hmm. I think. Um, I think I think what social media has done on the positive side and I can see lots and lots of negatives but on the positive side, I think it feeds into what I call this confessional culture you know, we live in a culture now where everyone is talking about themselves and other people. Everyone is telling this, putting their story out there. And so there, it, it can contribute to a greater openness about identities, about different ways of living one's life. And that, that can be a, a, a good thing because it, it can, you know, broadcast the range of possibilities that there are. But clearly, you know, the other side of the coin is is much more negative and can be incredibly damaging, particularly for for younger women, I think, and perhaps also for younger men. I mean, as you were speaking there, it was making making me think of the campaign on Twitter after the Sarah Everard murder with women sharing their experiences of just the things we do by default when we're walking around, not even necessarily that late at night, but when it's dark. And I know I do this. I I stop and tie my shoelace if there's somebody very close behind me uh, and just the things that we all do do naturally um, yeah. because we've sort of learned to do that to protect ourselves. Yeah that was a, I mean that was a very interesting moment for me because of course we all had that discussion back in the 70s and 80s I think and thought oh okay that's really interesting that we're having to have that discussion again but the discussion was happening in another place and it was probably a more powerful place actually because more people could engage in that. Actually, that's really interesting. It makes me think of the Reclaim the Night marches um, when I was at university, which are very much trying to do, I guess, what the Twitter campaign was, was doing in, in a different way. I mean, talking about um, women or LGBTI, young people and others having a safe space. Um, I mean, one of the things around the, the pandemic is we know it's not played out equally across society. And one of the issues that seems to have been raised is about whether women are safe in their homes and have been mm. confined to their homes. But, um, you know, how, from your perspective, Lynn, has, has the pandemic impacted on gender inequalities? Has it reinforced them or what opportunities does it, does it provide to, to reset them, if you like? So I guess at the moment it's, it's still quite early to say. 
Um, there's been lots of anecdotal evidence and a few studies um, of the impact of the pandemic, particularly on people's work-life balance, on, on gender relations within the home. You mentioned domestic violence. I mean, that, that has been highlighted. Um, clearly, you know, lots of, of good number of people in a very difficult situations in, in lockdown. Um, I suppose it's, it's, as I say, it's still a, bit, a little bit early to say, um, but it, I think there is an opportunity that people have, have, have seen what a different kind of work-life balance can be. And although a lot of families really struggled during lockdown, and particularly be, because of homeschooling and having to juggle, um, in, often in quite cramped spaces, all the demands of work and housework and childcare and pets and elderly parents and the anxiety about the pandemic, which was awful. And we're still in it, really. Um, at the same time, I think people have begun to identify some different ways of living, if they possibly can. And, and people are beginning to make some more sort of reasoned choices about whether they go back to the office, for instance, if they work in an office, whether they're able to continue to stay at home for a little bit. So there might be there might be some changes there. I think a lot of it will depend on employers, though, actually. And, and I suppose it, employees um, making those demands of those in, of, the, of those employers and, and requiring or asking for that flexibility. And it would I mean, I'm quite hopeful about that. I think there could be some really, really interesting changes, changes there. But I'm speaking from a really privileged perspective as a sort of middle class person in a well paid job. And I can do it perfectly well from home, even though I'm not particularly happy being at home all the time. Um, but I quite appreciate that, you know, large numbers of people are unable to do that and their work takes them out the home and they have to be there. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's continued inequalities there, not necessarily on the basis of gender, but on the basis of social class and, and job family. And we've certainly seen that, I think, played out in the pandemic is that it hasn't played out equally across society and some groups have been particularly impacted in, in particular ways. I mean, I think what will be interesting in terms of that sort of the, for the people who've got the privilege of having the flexibility of being able to work differently is whether that will actually play out differently for men and women. I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, actually how paternity leave has not necessarily been taken up to the same degree that might have been anticipated and whether we might see more men returning to the office and, and fewer women. So I think it'd be really interesting to see how things play out and, and the role of culture, I guess, um, as well as as well as what's 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 offered by employers. But but Ian, what about for um uh, LGBTI young people? Has has homeschooling been a, a welcome relief or, or has it simply resulted in different forms of bullying and, and isolation? Oh, that, that, that's a really challenging question. Uh, I, I think um, in one respect, we, it, it's the classic thing of it's too early to tell. Um, much of the research that has been conducted has been within the third sector. And there, there, are some very, there are some very large studies that indicate that what used to be face-to-face -face bullying has moved online and that young LGBT people certainly experienced um, harassment both from strangers and from people they knew um, via social media or indeed text or um, email. So I think that you know that has just gone on. It's just simply maybe moved slightly more in one direction than another. But um, you know the big worry always with this homeschooling um, resulting from the pandemic 
pandemic is whether or not young people who have had a very negative, potentially a very negative experience at school have actually achieved all that they could achieve because we know that, you know, they've had reduced hours of, of teaching. Now, ironically, we know historically that for some young LGBTI people, um, not going to school was actually beneficial. They studied at home and, um, you know, were successful. Um, so it'd be really interesting to see whether or not there is an attainment gap coming through. But I think this, the research by the Thai campaign on LGBT teenagers during lockdown was particularly useful in just highlighting the fact that bullying didn't go away. It very much stayed. Um, different forms of communication coming through, but just as many negative impacts, such as um, some mental health concerns, et cetera. But there was also really a, a quite a strong desire to get back to school, to get back to spaces, because of course, as we've, you know, we've been on a journey in Scotland for about 20 years around LGBTI inclusion in education. Started way back when um, Jack McConnell was um, the first minister. And I think one of the important things to think about is the fact that we have what are now called uh, gender sexuality alliances, but gay straight alliances in schools. We have clubs and societies within schools where these young people were supported. And I think it was also very interesting to see how many charities very, very quickly pivoted and successfully to online support um, rather than face to face. So. It's a, it's a mixed bag at the minute, but I, I think all of the issues around domestic violence, intimate partner violence, still very prevalent um, within that this particular group. And I think, if I remember rightly, seeing some data recently, that reports had declined during the pandemic. But that does that. But there's a huge difference between reports and what's actually going on. Um, one of the issues that was really, really problematic, particularly down south, was homelessness. Young people being confined to what is potentially a hostile home. And you saw particular charities for LGBT youth homelessness reporting a great deal more demand for their services, particularly for trans youth. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, very mixed bag, but um, some positives, but also quite a few negatives, particularly where there's an underreporting of violence in the home or indeed um, an underreporting of bullying via other media. I mean, clearly there's a, a both in terms of LGBTI young people and in terms of the experience of, of women in certain settings, there's, there's, there's the importance of individual behaviours um, in terms of sort of uh, what what we all do as individuals or what we don't do as individuals as well. But what do you see as the role of systems and structures in, in a, addressing some of the issues faced around equality and, and diversity? I mean, I mean, Ian, you, you mentioned the Thai campaign. What ro role, I guess, is this, do you think the state has in terms of supporting a, a more equal and diverse uh, educational experience? Oh, dear, that is one huge question. Um... I think for in some instances, the state has abrogated responsibility for looking after particular groups within society and referred it to the, the third um, or voluntary sector. I get really, really concerned when you see organizations um, 
struggling for funding when they're actually really doing the work that social work, statutory services should be doing. But I was also very concerned when this year um, the UK government decided to disband its advisory group on LGBTI issues. You know, and it had been set up by Theresa May. It was there to actually give a give a sounding board to any policy and legislation coming forward. And it's just been kicked out um, under under Boris Johnson's administration, with with no real reason other than you know we are we are hot on equalities, therefore it's okay. You know, you can trust us. And I think there's a lot more trust to be built. And we're also seeing what well, we're also seeing within the LGBT community, some infighting, particularly on the, the issue of trans. And that's born out of perhaps ill thought through legislation where the best of intentions were were evident, but there needed to be much more consultation, much more thought. And I think, you know, sense and social science have failed on that particular um, discussion point, which is a real shame because we're, we're now starting to see groups that have been cohesive pull apart. Uh, and, and really, I, d- I do think that the state had an incredibly um, important role to play here and, and failed to deliver. But, I, you know, I'll just go back to the fact that we cannot rely on the third sector on year-on-year funding to deliver statutory services for this particular group in society. I'm not quite sure I answered your question fully, but... Well, it was a big question, as, as you say, and I think your last point there, I think, has been echoed in other, in other aspects of services as well, where the third sector is, is playing a really critical role, but is sort of living a little bit hand-to-mouth and from funding from year-on-year. Year. I mean, I wonder, Lynn, in terms of the role of the state and systems and structures, you, you referred earlier to the sort of intransigent issue of the distribution of care in, in the home and sort of the unequal distribution of care. Um, I mean, again, what, what role do you think the state has in, in supporting the addressing of that issue? Yeah, I was going to echo Ian, really, and talk about <laughs> abrogation of the state's responsibility in the in the care space. As we talk about it I mean not so much perhaps in respect of of child care but but care of dependence care of the elderly clearly this is this is I mean the pandemic has has really made this in clearer clear much clearer if, if we needed to know that I mean I think most of us understand that the the care crisis is really critical in this country um, and the pandemic just intensified that with with you know clearly the issues in care homes, but also very many elderly people who live alone or live in couples and need quite a lot of, of input from either their family or from charities, third sector and statutory agencies, just not getting that during that pandemic because people couldn't go into their, into their homes. And I think, I think this is really critical. We've got an pa- epidemic of loneliness amongst elderly people um, we've got I think we've got real concerns about how a lot of elderly people are being looked after now and also we've got inequalities of care in families as mainly women have to step up and you know into the spaces left by other agencies so I think it's a real real um, real real problem and we the government really needs to get to grips with it and it doesn't seem to be doing that at the moment. 
And do you think there's any particular countries who are doing this well, who we can learn from, or is it a sort of wider global issue? I think it is a global issue, and and this isn't my really my area of expertise. I did read the other day that that some other European countries have put into place various tax and insurance schemes around elderly care and and so on um, that that you know Britain could Britain could learn from. In Germany, I think has done it done it recently. Um, I mean, I think you know there are positives and negatives to learn from other countries' experiences. I mean, I know that on on the issue of childcare. Um, which is still, you know, a, a kind of live issue in, in this country. If you look to the Nordic countries, and you look particularly to Sweden, where there has been a massive um, input into into childcare, everyone can get childcare if they need it. But the problem then, the unintended consequence, is that women are then expected to work full time. Um, and then also, you need a large army of workers in the childcare industry. They tend to be women, and they are still not particularly well paid. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it, the, the issue needs to be seen holistically, and it often isn't. We often seem to deal with one element of it. Oh well, we'll fix the childcare by providing um, lots of nurseries. But then there are lots of unintended consequences from that, which then kind of skew the situation even further. And I suppose the same situation arises with elderly care as well. You know, the vast majority of carers in care homes and so on are, are women on very low pay. And, and Ian, what about in your area? Are there other countries you look to sort of rather enviously and think, well, I wish we had that or wish we could do it in that way or, or that we can learn from? Again, it, it swings and roundabouts. You know, some countries make significant progress, new administration comes in, and you suddenly see that progress pulled back, like Hungary this week. You know, there was, um, you know, they've introduced a version, a, a more a more strident version of Section 28 this week than previously, and there's been protests in the street. I think, uh, I think almost the Nordic countries have got it, have tend to have got it right. Um, you know, and occasionally there are some there's some really great initiatives that come out in the US, but of course, the US is a very, very fractious place, mm -hmm. and you know, the slightest change in state legislature and everything will change. Um, so I don't think there's any but any one country that's got it absolutely right. It, 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 it's it's a journey, and it's almost like when you get one step forward, you take two steps back with with a subsequent government, because people have very, very strong issues on the on the issue of sexuality. I think what you're both saying is a need for a holistic approach, but also, I guess, a recognition of just the complexity of some of these issues and doing, you know, making one intervention, however well-intentioned, might also have some unintended consequences that, that really need considered. I mean, Lynn is a historian. I, I know you'll be interested in sort of what we can learn from history. Mm. And, and is there any particular learning from history you think we should be taking into the future in terms of how we address gender inequalities or inequalities more broadly? Uh, well, not especially, but um, because we often haven't done these things very well. And, and as we know, I mean, particularly around if we're talking about care in particular, um, you know, there is a long history of inequality in, in care. But I think perhaps what we can take from the past is 
perhaps models where there's more decentralised care, where care doesn't always devolve on mothers or daughters, but let's just put it simply like that, where you have more complex kinship networks and community networks and, and a variety of different groups who take responsibility for those who need care at different stages of their lives. Um, and I think that's probably a more sort of helpful, devolved system that we might look to rather than to always looking to particular individuals or particular agencies to, to deliver this kind of care. Actually, that's, I mean, that's interesting. It almost seems one of the things that was lost during the pandemic is some of those informal networks where families would have a sort of sharing of childcare because a child would be over at such and such's house for a day or and then they'd take another turn another day. And, and that was really sort of dented, obviously, by the, the um, inability to connect to other, other households. That's correct. And, and, and for the elderly, too, I think, I mean, it's the same kind of thing applies, you know, day centres closed down, all of those kinds of things which which got people out of their homes and gave other people a bit of a bit of a rest, you know, just just dis- just disappeared overnight. And it's, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how many of those come back, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big worry, isn't it? Yeah, but but we are actually losing quite a lot at the moment as as organizations find it really difficult to get back on their feet again and you were nodding there Ian yeah I mean I I, absolutely I mean you know anecdotally when you hear that an elderly person's first significant social contact has been their vaccination Mm. you think well something is very very wrong in this system but I was just reflecting upon early years and the fact that we're still challenged by the fact by issues such as peripatetic care and actually being able to have multiple people look after a child, given the current COVID variant that's out there and is more transmissible. Um, you know, all, all of these things have really been thrown into, into um, relief by the pandemic. And I, th- I think and I do hope that we're, we're going to learn so many lessons from this. Mm. And, you know, we, we've got to actually think about what COVID recoveries look like. And we can't go back to how it was. Mm. And I think the new normal could be exciting. But if everybody's expecting to go back to the old, old normal, then I think that's a real problem because we have to really start to rebuild our systems. And certainly the Post-COVID Futures Commission that RSC establishes very much in that light. What can we learn for the pandemic to make the future as good as it, it can be? Um, and I think actually it has shown it into light relief, actually, the importance of some of the things that might not have been seen as so important, like some of these community networks and, and provisions in supporting um, connectivity and community. Um, it's not always big scale interventions. But I'm, I'm going to give you a, a magic wand, both of you. So um, if you could each do one thing to address gender inequality or, or inequality more generally and support diversity in Scotland today, what would that be? And I appreciate it as a challenging question, but it also does give you the opportunity to, to work some magic. Lynn? I think, you know, I think I would, I would change work cultures. I think that kind of underpins a, a lot of problems that we're trying to grapple with at the moment. Um, and we've seen just glimpses of that during the pandemic. And so if we look forward, if we can, if we can embrace greater flexibility of working, actually, if we could embrace things like the four day week, um, I think that would be 
hugely helpful to to families um, who struggle with, you know, two people full time working or trying to juggle lots of different jobs as well as childcare and and everything else and having a kind of you know reasonable quality of life. So if we could change work cultures, the expectation a that people are in work five days a week, or or actually for many people more than that now, because they're having to do so many different jobs, Um, cut back on working hours and celebrate a much better work-life balance for men and for women. I think that that would really help a lot of the other issues that we're trying to grapple with around around care in, in particular, actually. Thank you. And Ian, for you? I, I think I'm sort of hedging towards the I'd like people not to be gender blind, but gender literate, but also LGBTI literate rather than say that sexuality doesn't matter. And I think that's a really, for me, that's a really important point that I think some of the initiatives that you see around addressing the pay gap, et cetera, are trying to be gender blind and saying that actually the fact that it's a, uh, a woman or a man going for a job or getting this salary is, is irrelevant. Actually, it's not. It is very, very relevant because there may be issues such as you know maternity leave, et cetera. So I think gender literacy and LGBTI literacy is really, really the way I'd like to see us go rather than saying, you know, we'll try and ignore these things and just say there's a human being there. Thank you very much. And Lynn and Ian, thank you so much for taking the time today to share your expertise and and talk with me about equality and diversity. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can find previous Tea and Talk episodes on our website, rsc.org.uk. Or you can subscribe on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. For our latest news, details of events and activities, search for the Royal Society of Edinburgh on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube.